Will a global pandemic and the economic fallout spawned by it be the thing that finally slows the soaring value of sports franchises? Our Chris Smith has that story this week, and he's here to talk about it. Then, we'll hear from executive editor and publisher Abe Magcor. From the digitally connected, socially distanced virtual newsroom of Sports Business Journal, I'm Bill King, and this is First Look. The escalation of franchise values across sports over the last decade has been staggering, racing forward seemingly without regard to economic conditions or, for that matter, the traditional multiples that bankers have used to value teams. So what happens to those values in the face of a global pandemic and the associated economic meltdown? And to talk about that now is our Chris Smith. Chris, your story began with an interesting and intuitive question. With sports shut down by a global pandemic and the U.S. economy in recession, what will that mean, if anything, to this rocket ship that franchise values have been on across sports, really, for quite a while now? What did you find? You know, to tell you the truth, Bill, I found a lot of people who really weren't sure. Uh, Yeah. You know, I talked to nearly a dozen people, finance sources in the industry. And, you know, I think most of them, like all of us, you know, wish they had a crystal ball, but really don't know what the future holds. And so... Um, you know, as you mentioned, I think a lot of people have been asking the question for a long time, you know, what could possibly slow down this trajectory that all these, you know, team values have been on, um, you know, exploding year after year after year, uh, as we see these valuations skyrocket. Right. Uh, and I think the expectation here is that, you know, if this is a short term issue, you know, if we're returning to sports soon and we see a lot of leagues kind of getting things back in place, uh, you know, maybe that writes the ship and, you know, these values aren't going to feel it at all. You know, they just shrug this off as another little blip and move on. Um, the concern, though, is if this turns out to be a very long-term issue, that if, you know, if we're not adding, you know, putting fans back in the stadiums for years, uh, you're sort of rewriting the entire business model. Right. Uh, and at that point, you, you start asking these fundamental questions of, you know, what are these assets worth when we don't even really know what the business model is going to be? Uh, and that, I think, has some people, uh, you know, spooked is probably overstating it. But a little bit concerned about, you know, whether this could be the moment we see uh, some pushback or some pullback on, you know, that growth in team values. Put in a context, the escalation in franchise values, just as a backdrop to this, the escalation in franchise values that we've seen leading up to this, I'll recall it the last decade, maybe it's the last 15 years, however you want to look at it, that escalation in franchise value, put that in a context, especially as compared to other investments. It's you know, staggering. Uh, I think a really good example is you look at Steve Ballmer buying the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, you know, he buys the Clippers back in 2014 for $2 billion. Everybody in the world thinks he's overpaid. I think the next highest bid was $1.6, $1.7 billion. Um, you know, Forbes now has them at $2.6 billion, and everyone today thinks he had, you know, it was a great deal, right? And he's coming out, you know, 30% ahead within, you know, six years. And it's just like that across the board. You know, we see probably two, three controlled transactions happen every year. Uh, and almost all of them are, you know, reflections of this, you know, almost insane appreciation. Carolina Panthers sell for uh, almost $2.3 billion a few years ago to David Tepper. Um, you know, Jerry Richardson buys that team back in the early 90s uh, for a few hundred million. You know, and that's including the stadium costs, you know, expansion fee of $140 right. million. Dollars. Similarly, you look at the Kansas City Royals. Uh, sold for a billion dollars last year, uh, you know, sold to David Glass originally uh, less than two decades before for less than 100 million. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really hard to, you know, find another asset class that compares to that sort of growth. 
you know, the stock market has been on this tremendous, well, obviously lately things are a little bit right. up and down, but had been on this tremendous bull run, uh, and sports teams are blowing that away. So it's, uh, it really is truly incredible just, you know, how quickly uh, these teams have appreciated, uh, or how rapidly these teams have appreciated in such a short amount of time. It seems like most sports bankers see these teams as an asset class that's almost impervious to outside economic forces. Why, why is, is that the case and why is that? I think so. I mean, a lot of people you talk to even today think these team assets are still undervalued, that they should be selling for even more. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that is that, uh, one, it is you know a very, very, very scarce asset. You know, if you think about the fact yeah. that have only a handful of these leagues and, you know, outside of MLS, none of them are really expanding. Uh, I guess, you know, NHL is adding some teams, you know, you hear some chatter. Uh, but for the most part, it's a set ecosystem. Uh, and so you have more teams coming into this space uh, and there is demand. You know, people want to own sports teams so they can say they own sports teams. You know, there's almost that ego aspect of it uh, and that affinity aspect that these are kind of legacy investments, um, you know, beyond the obvious financial uh, benefits of, you know, if you have, you know, some of these teams, you're basically printing money, uh, right. especially in the NFL uh, and, you know, the appreciation uh, is nothing to sneeze at. And so you can, it's just a, you know, supply demand thing where you have a lot of demand uh, and there is just no supply. Like I said, you know, you have two or three control stakes at the market every year. And, you know, I think some people think there might be a slight uptick in that coming up now is, you know, some of these owners face uh, cash crunches and just, you know, financial struggles given, uh, the current economic situation, but just that basic scarcity in the market has been enough to just kind of keep those values surging, you know, even to your point in the face of economic hardships, you know, last recession didn't slow things down at all. This is an old story, but, but, uh, I remember when the Marlins were for sale, when John Henry originally bought the Marlins, which was, was, I want to call it 1998, 1999. It was in that range. Wayne Huizenga sold. Uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of people saw that back then, which I think, and I, you know, I could be a little off, but I want to call it like 160 million or so. And Huizenga had pulled out the regional sports network from it and stripped it down. And, you know, he had the dolphins and the, and so a lot of the suites were tied up there. And, and so it was really not a, a, a particularly attractive structure. Uh, that John Henry bought into, and and most people in the industry felt like he quote unquote overpaid. Particularly when you looked at, I think Minnesota was for might have been for sale at the time. There were other clubs that were for sale at the time in equivalent or better situations that had sold for less, or or that were you know that were expected to be sold for less. And here John comes in and pays this price that surprised a lot of people. And I, I remember you know asking him the question about you know, the Marlins and that price when all these other teams were for sale. And he said at that time, I live in South Florida. I want to own a team in South Florida. This is the one that's for sale. And that was that. He had the money. That's what Wayne wanted. The negotiation did not go on for very long. And John got his team. That always to me has been a real lesson that we sometimes forget. You know, this isn't just an asset, you know, that you look at. It's one thing to go to the bank and borrow money against it. It's another when you look at what you're willing to pay for it, right? Especially if you don't have to go to go to the bank to finance for it. Absolutely right. Uh, and I think we have to remember, you know, value is really just a reflection of what somebody is willing to pay. Yes. Not what everybody's willing to pay, but all you need is one person. Uh, and that goes for if you're selling your car or if you're selling your baseball team. And to your point, you know, Steve Ballmer, you know, he had tried to buy the Sonics. He had tried to buy the Sacramento Kings. Uh, and now the Clippers become available. And it's 
hey, you could have a basketball team in Los Angeles. This is a one, literally a once in a lifetime opportunity to buy an asset like that. You know, and if you're in Steve Ballmer's position where you have that kind of cash on hand, you know, why get into a bidding war? Why, you know, worry about, you know, losing another chance to have, uh, you know, an NBA team in such a major market. And so you wind up with these values that are just astronomical because of that, you know, kind of individual, you know, micro level dynamic. Does anyone see the potential that because of what's gone on in someone else's businesses or what the rest of their finances look like? They might in a, be in a position where they have to sell and someone could then look at this as a distressed asset because of what the situation is right now. Is that a possibility, a likelihood, or just, just flat out not what it looks like right now? I would say possibility, slight possibility right now. You know, people I talk to say, uh, you know, they're starting to think about that, especially when you look at owners who, uh, you know, made their money in oil, uh, owners who have their money in defense you know, businesses and restaurants and, you know, casinos. And, you know, we're seeing some of these businesses come back online, but we're also going on, you know, what, four months of, you know, revenues for those businesses being zero or close to it. Uh, and in the meantime, remember, a lot of these teams have a tremendous amount of debt and they have, you know, big payrolls and those expenses need to be paid. Uh, and so if you have an owner who's facing tightness in those outside businesses and, you know, has that cash crunch and needs to keep coming up with expenses, uh, yes. I mean, I think you very well wind up with uh, some owners in a spot where they have no other choice but to sell. You know, I should note that, uh, you know, in the NFL, I don't think that's so much of a concern. Uh, and you see, and in the other leagues, you have a lot of you know, tremendously wealthy owners who have other assets that they can, you know, get liquidity through. Um, but in baseball and hockey and major league soccer, I think that a lot of people are kind of starting to circle some names of, you know, who are these owners who are not the you know, multi-billionaire rich owners uh, who, once they start feeling squeezed here, um, you know, may be forced to go to market. You mentioned in the story, you bring up Tillman Fertitta, right? But that's an interest uh, there, I think, is an interesting illustration, right? What did you hear there? Tillman Fertitta is uh, probably a great example for the uh, you know, question you just asked, uh, because his business is in restaurants and is in gambling. Uh, and he already had, you know, a decent amount of debt to finance his original purchase of the Rockets, uh, you know, a few years ago, buying the Rockets for $2.2 billion dollars. Uh, which at the time was a record price for a pro sports team. Recently, just raised another three hundred million dollars at thirteen percent. You know, right now you get a loan in the bank; it's almost zero percent interest. And so you can think about, you know, kind of how much he needed uh, to raise that capital. Uh, you know, with an interest rate like that. But people I talk to say, you know, there is no sense that he's looking to sell. Uh, you know, he's going to ride this out. Uh, you know, he you know, is going to do what he needs to or has to in order to keep that team. Uh, and I think that if, you know, someone in a position like that where, you know, people just sort of assume the worst, uh, if there's still enough stability there to hang on to a team, you figure, you know, there should be enough runway, um, you know, for most of these people to get through this. Uh, again, assuming that, you know, we're returning to sports in the near future and that, you know, ideally fans coming back into the building next season. You know, if things go on longer than that, I think we start asking you know these questions again. What did you hear around MLS, right? That's the the hot rising sports asset, all that expansion, escalating franchise prices that people paid, in some cases, expansion teams that have not launched yet, that are building staffs, that have expenses, don't have payroll necessarily, or those that are early on in, you know, in, in, uh, in their entry, uh, where they do have rosters and they are pay, starting to pay salaries. And even if they do come back, 
Like even if they do come back in front of nobody, they don't have that media contract, that national media contract that the NBA can lean on, the NHL can lean on, Major League Baseball can lean on. That's not the case for the MLS. MLS franchises are where they are because what people of what people think they're worth in terms of bringing people through the turnstiles. If they can't bring people through turnstiles, or if they can only bring a quarter of a stadium through the turnstiles, and they've paid these large prices. What does that look like? What are people saying around sports about whether those, how those assets stand? Just that question. What does that look like? Yeah, it is potentially a very, very scary situation um, because, to your point, you know they have a national uh, TV deal and they have some national level sponsorship deals. Yet still, team owners are paying capital calls back to the league. Uh, you know, this isn't like the NFL where every owner gets to cash a big media rights paycheck coming in from the league. Uh, you know, the money is flowing the opposite direction. And when you have over what, 90% of your team level revenues are probably coming from game day uh, and, you know, getting people through the turnstile and buying beers and sodas and jerseys, uh, it becomes a very scary proposition when you say, hey, you're not going to have fans in the building. Uh, or to your point, oh, you're not going to be able to fill the building. And remember, you know, along with expansion has come stadium construction. Uh, you know, MLS has required that incoming owners build uh, soccer-specific stadiums. And that has required a lot of debt. Uh, you know, a lot of teams have financed these you know, great buildings, and they're beautiful. And, you know, the perfect places to go watch a soccer game. And, but now they become an anchor if you don't have revenues coming in to cover the debt service on that. Uh, so I think that it's still kind of in that category of too soon to tell, uh, and we'll wait and see what happens. Uh, and it is worth remembering that a lot of these new owners coming in, you know, MLS has prioritized owners who are wealthy, right. sort of these billionaire owners, uh, you know, David Tepper, Arthur Blank, you know, Joe Mansueto uh, in Chicago. And that helps, you know, that helps a lot to have those owners there. But I do think that there is concern uh, with owners who maybe aren't quite so wealthy, uh, right, you know, who aren't showing up on um, you know, Forbes lists as you know, some of the richest men in America and they're covering, you know, to your point, uh, payrolls and staff uh, and trying to keep these you know, franchises operational uh, as they wait for sports to come back. Uh, so if anyone is really at risk, I would say it's MLS. Um, and, you know, and Don Garber has been out front about this. You know, he said that the league's probably going to suffer about a billion dollars uh, in revenue losses as a result of the pandemic. Uh, so, that is a uh, you know very 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 big number, especially for a league you know still kind of in the growth um, phase uh, as it gets up and running uh, in terms of you know continued expansion. One of those things that's really changed though, as a result of the of 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 this wildfire growth of asset, is the wealth of the owner, right? I mean, this happens fifteen years ago. It's probably a different picture than now just when you consider how these these owners are positioned just because what it if you could afford to get in to begin with maybe you can afford to sustain a little better right and i think now more so than ever you know a lot of these owners uh you know their wealth is the team uh and so uh whereas i think before it was the team was maybe a you know one small asset as part of your bigger portfolio now you know the team is the crown jewel uh and so uh, it, it is an interesting dynamic, and I think that um, you know, and so there's uh, limited partnership stakes. I think are gonna we're gonna see a whole lot of being traded soon. And that, this is something that uh, a bunch of sources have mentioned to me. 
And that, you know, I think will be a combination of, you know, minority partners who need to get out, but also control partners who maybe need to sell down a little bit, where if you're a hundred percent owner, maybe you're selling 10, 15, 20% of that team because uh, you need to raise the capital. What do those look like though? Because again, and, and I'm curious about just the, the general strategy of somebody who buys into a team now at, you know, at a few percent or, or even that 15% stake or, or whatever it may be that's, that's out there that's offered. Um, is, is there, is there much of a return annually that's thrown, thrown off there, or is it all based on the expectation of an eventual sale that no indication that's going to come? Right. It's a a little of all of the above. I think part of it, as we're talking about before, you know, there is value in saying, Hey, I'm an owner of X team, right. right? Or if you're getting to go to games in the suites and, uh, you know, getting to interact with, uh, whether it's the players or, you know, kind of that B2B relationship with other, you know, high level execs who are. You know, interacting with that team, you know, there are sort of tangible benefits in that regard. Um, two, to your point, in a lot of these leagues and for a lot of these teams, you know, there are dividends and you're actually walking away, um, you know, with a return on an annual basis. Uh, and I think a lot of owners uh, have realized that as a passive investment, um, it's a tremendous place to have some money. You know, if you stick, you know, $50 million into a sports team, you might be adding a zero to the end of that within, you know, a decade. So, there's, uh, you know, a lot of benefits there, but now the question is, yeah, do I want to throw all this money into an asset that doesn't quite have that certainty, right? If we're now, you know, asking the question of, you know, are we still on this trajectory or are things turning around? Uh, maybe it doesn't make any sense to you know, pull all of that cash into an asset where you have no say, right? You have no governance. And I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be an interesting dynamic. I, you know, I spoke with one source who basically said, Hey, we're going to have, you know, potentially a lot of these stakes coming to market as people try to, you know, raise cash. But you also maybe have a, you know, slight dip in demand if people start getting wary of, you know, these assets. Uh, And one thing, you know, I wrote about as well is that uh, this may be counteracted by, you know, this kind of new trend we're seeing in institutional money. Um, You know, a lot of people putting together these private equity Mm -hmm. funds uh, for that very reason that, you know, team owners need liquidity and it is no longer easy to just go find an individual buyer who has uh, and is willing to give up, you know, the amount of money it takes to own a minority stake in one of these teams that, you know, if we have uh, funds coming in to sort of replace those buyers, you know, and provide liquidity to make sure we don't have, uh, you know, owners going to an illiquid market. Somebody once described that as buying a Porsche that you're not allowed to drive. (laughs) (laughs) It is is true. It's... uh... It's a, it's a great point. For a lot of these owners, you know, I think it's you have to just try to look at the numbers and make sure they make sense. Uh, you know, it's not exactly uh, like you're coming in and you get to run the show. I'm also curious, even if this doesn't drag on, if you, t- you think about franchises that are looking at sustaining significant losses – um, this season, does that likely mean, you know, for, for those investors, could that mean cash calls? Could that mean seeing their stakes de- decreased as a result of not meeting those cash calls? What does that look like in today's environment? Did you talk to anybody about that? Yeah, I heard a little bit about that. I think there is an expectation that, um, you know, if these franchises do start, you know, winding up deep in the red, uh, you know, there will be cash calls, uh, and owners will be expected to pony up to help cover those losses. Uh, and, uh, I think that's part of the expectation of, you know, maybe a lot of these owners selling because they go, Hey, you know, I don't want to, you know, have to spend, uh, millions of more dollars just to maintain this stake. Uh, if there is uncertainty and you have to remember a lot of these minority partners aren't the, 
you know, mega wealthy billionaires right. and, you know, they largely are business owners outside of the sports teams. And so if their individual businesses are struggling, uh, you know, that might be, you know, the sort of asset you can't really afford to keep right now. And if you don't cover a cash call, you know, your stake's getting diluted. You're on the hook for kind of your share one way or the other. So I think, uh, you know, it's sort of too early to say, um, you know, how extensive those are going to be. Um, and we've seen that, uh, you know, in the NFL, uh, they raised their debt limits not too long ago, uh, you know, $350 million to $500 million uh, at the team level. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see a little bit more kind of uh, borrowing as a way to try to cover things in the near term. But I think there is an expectation that there will be stress on these owners to, uh, to come up with uh, some cash in the near term. And if they can't uh, either, you know, losing their stakes or, set, you know, kind of being in a position where they're forced to sell. The uh, last thing I wanted to touch on with you, and that's the, you know, it's, it's interesting in the sale process. It's not like somebody puts a sign out outside the building, you know, a for sale sign up. It's that's, that's not the way this works. Um, well, unless you're the men. Unless you're, <laughs> that's right. These are generally, uh, generally, generally tend to be fairly quiet, at least at the beginning. Now there were times when there weren't, I mean, there were back when teams were losing money left and right. And you saw all kinds of owners very vocally saying, if someone will just take this off my hands, please call. Um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't any secret at all during those times, but in these days that has not been the case at all. I think generally when a franchise goes up for sale, it's, it's fairly quiet. Um, or it's because someone has been sniffing around all sorts of, of, of teams and, and there finally was an owner that says, okay, I, I, I might be ready to consider. It's difficult to know what might have been on the market three or four months ago, but have you heard anything about whether there were any deals that were moving at all that stopped as a result? Not anything specific, but I did have one banker uh, note to me that, uh, you know, there's interest right now in, you know, potentially buying and selling, but nobody wants to pull the trigger because of the uncertainty. Uh, You know, it's very hard to determine a price right now, uh, because if you were using a multiple of revenue or multiple of earnings, you don't know what those revenues or earnings are going to be for the next few years. Mm -hmm. It's sort of an impossible calculation. Uh, so I do think there has been a little bit of slowdown in actual deal making, um, even though the conversations are still happening. Um, you know, I have heard chatter of, you know, particularly on the minority partner front, um, you know, people kind of testing the market and seeing what people are interested in. But I think that everyone's a little bit wary to uh, make any big commitment right now uh, with so much uncertainty still in the space. As one person put it to me, you know, we're going to see, you know, a real quiet summer and then three months from now, six months from now once we start coming out of this is one, we're going to see the flurry of deals. And he suspected that, you know, kind of the number of deals we see in a year, which is what, two, three control deals, maybe double that in uh, LP stakes, at least the ones, you know, that we hear about. Right. Uh, he thought, you know, that might double. Uh, and so uh, we'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And I think we'll rely kind of largely on, do we get to a point where we're saying, hey, we're back to normal, uh, you know, get the fans back in the stadium, or are we saying, uh, how do we you know, rewrite this entire business model? All right, Chris Smith, great stuff. Great story this week. Uh, thanks so much for, uh, for dropping by. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you having me. First Look is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're a fan of our podcast, subscribe on your mobile device to have First Look delivered right to your phone every Monday morning. Now we turn to executive editor and publisher Abe Madcore. Abe. Thank you, Bill King. I'm Abe Matcor. Good to talk to everyone this week. Hope everybody is safe, healthy, and of course, being good to each other. 
our in-depth package this week, a really good look at the state of women's sports. We did this because one of the most frequent questions I've been asked since mid-March is how the global pandemic could stunt the momentum, growth, and subsequent future of women's sports. I get it. A tightening economy, corporate sponsorship budgets decreasing, less discretionary spending by consumers to spend on tickets, even wealthy supporters of women's sports who are now less financially capitalized. All those make women's sports very vulnerable. Just think about the difficulty right now if you're an owner of an NWSL team, of some of the people supporting women's hockey, certainly some of the independent owners of the WNBA. All of them are being challenged financially. We also see the lack of the WNBA even starting a season is certainly a financial challenge for all of these owners and for the league. LPGA events, WTA events not playing. So we have a real pivotal moment where we have to support women's sports. Also, I loved it how LPGA Tour Commissioner Michael Wan challenged corporate sponsors to support women's sports more to the tune that they support men's sports. And it's a challenge and a call out for everybody in the sports business. We need to do all we can to make sure that women's sports remain as viable and continue the momentum they had because they really did have some unbelievable momentum prior to the pandemic. Another thing I'm looking at, great piece of reporting by our John Aran and Eric Prisbel, who report this week that MLB is close to an agreement to renew its rights deal with Turner Sports to around a 40% average annual increase. That would be aligned with the 40% increase that baseball received from Fox Sports last year that took their deal through 2028. Why is this important? Well, look at the timing of this deal. It's not signed. It's not done. But believe me, the players union and the players will see this deal as a real indicator that baseball is healthy and that baseball owners are doing quite well, thank you, and that they don't believe that there should be any pullback in player salaries during a truncated 2020 season impacted by the coronavirus. So this deal, once it gets out into the mainstream media and other people see it, I do think is going to potentially have an impact on these upcoming negotiations to return to play. If you you could read two stories, though, in our issue this week, two great pieces. I've known Bill Squires for years. Everybody in the facility business knows Bill Squires. He is seen as really one of the most respected, knowledgeable, veteran facility executives. Just think of the buildings he's been at, Yankee Stadium, Giant Stadium, uh, the home of the Cleveland Browns, and of course, MetLife Stadium when it was developed a few years back. He really knows the business, and he's just an overall great guy. His battle with the coronavirus is a story worth reading. This was a brutal fight for his life, more than five weeks, losing more than 35 pounds. But the great news is he's back home, he's with his family, and he's doing much better. So Bill Squires, we're happy to see that, and it's a great story and a tribute and how strong you are to fight back against this awful coronavirus. And on a lighter, more personal note, John Aran has a really good look at George Solomon, who of course was the venerable Washington Post sports editor for so many years, but also is retiring from teaching at the University of Maryland Shirley Povich Center for Sports Journalism. So this is his second retirement. But John tells a great story about George Solomon's eye for talent. Just think Sally Jenkins, Christine Brennan, Michael Wilbon, David Aldridge, 
Tony Kornheiser, so many, Richard Justice, so many others, and the way he was able to motivate, inspire, and really just run one of the best newsrooms in the country. And by the way, he did this by also being one of the best guys in the sports business. George Solomon, a gem of a person, always kind, always has time for anybody. So a really nice look at his life and career and one you want to definitely give a read to. And finally, I encourage you to look at our virtual conference schedule. I outline it in my column this week. We're looking at all virtual events through the middle of October. Obviously, in-person event business for Sports Business Journal just faces too many risks right now. But we have a really interesting series called SBJ, The Road Ahead, a three-part virtual series. Our first one's June 30th. We're going to look very closely at how the sports business navigates the return of live events from the fan experience to corporate sponsorship investment and also safety considerations at venues as well as a number of other issues. This series is free to all subscribers of SBJ and SBD so we hope you will join us for SBJ The Road Ahead. But please take a look at our entire calendar over the next four months. Love to hear any questions, any thoughts, any comments you have on ways that we can make these events even more successful and more engaging and more appropriate and appealing and valuable to you. So a lot going on this week. I believe it's going to be a very, very big week for Major League Baseball. Their window, as we know, is tightening to get back to the field to play for any significant time for the 2020 season. So, Bill King, I'll turn it back over to you. Again, I'm Abe Madcor. Good to talk to all of you. Be safe, be healthy, be good to each other, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Abe. That's going to do it for this week. For Abe Madcor, Chris Smith, and our producer, Chris Mason, I'm Bill King, and this has been First Look.